I don't have uh, enough time to cover everything I'd, I'd like to cover in this topic, but I want to at least give you some flavour for the debate in more a developing country context. Um, yes, we've made a lot of progress against absolute poverty in the world. And this is just some uh, uh, graphs of uh, numbers that are produced on this. The proportion of population living below $2 a day, $1.25 a day over time. These are in 2005 international prices. Um, I also give you in that diagram, so on the vertical axis, the percentage of population poor, the headcount index of poverty, the proportion of, population, of the population living in households with a consumption or income per person less than these poverty lines, and, um, and over time on the horizontal axis. Um, huge progress in terms of numbers of poor. The, the decline is dramatic from uh, about 1.9 billion people living below $1.25 a day in 1981 to 500 uh, to 1.4 billion, a decline of 500 million uh, over the period 1981 to 2005 and, and continuing to 2008. Um, in fact, we think 2010, we're reasonably confident now that the uh, Millennium Development Goal of halving the 1990 poverty rate by 2015 was achieved in 2010 despite the global crisis. Developing countries weathered the crisis quite well. But it's been a highly uneven performance, and as you saw from the previous picture, you take out China, it doesn't look so good. And you look across regions, some regions it doesn't look good at all. In sub-Saharan Africa, here we have a, a plot of the numbers of poor by the $1.25 a day criterion. We see dramatic decline in East Asia and the Pacific, rising poverty numbers in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, fairly static, not much progress in terms of absolute numbers in South Asia. Uh, in other words, the proportion, the, the rate of decline in the, in the headcount index has not been large enough, given population growth, to increase, to reduce the number of poor in South Asia. When we look at inequality, again, an, an uneven picture. Uh, we've made progress against absolute poverty, but not so much progress in reducing overall inequality. In fact, if you look at average inequality within developing countries, it's tended to rise over this period. Um, is there a laser pointer I can use? Um, if you see that, that dark blue line, that's the developing world as a whole. Uh, the top line is the uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. So here on the vertical axis, it's the population-weighted inequality measure. So average inequality within developing countries over time. Um, uh, Middle East, North Africa, interestingly, we've seen a steady decline. If you can make out in the picture there, if you can make out Middle East, North Africa with the uh, crossed line, uh, that's one of the few regions that's seen a steady decline in inequality up to 2008. So if you want to look for the, an explanation of the Arab Spring by looking at inequality, it's, it's, not, it's going to be a pretty hard case to make. Uh, the, the origins are somewhere else. Um, Latin America and the Caribbean is really notable. This is, of course, the, the highest inequality region in, in the world. Um, we've known that for a long time. But we've also seen a, a, a substantial decline in inequality, uh, not just Brazil, but Brazil's played an important role um, since uh, around 2000. Um, and roughly speaking, we've got a kind of inequality convergence going on in the world. Inequality is falling in high inequality countries and rising in low inequality countries, associated with policy convergence. In other words, uh, lots of countries liberalizing their economies, becoming more market oriented. In the high inequality countries, the controls on the economy were increasing inequality, so inequality fell when you liberalized those economies. And in the low inequality countries, the exact opposite happened. Inequality rose. 
just the reverse process. So these diverse experiences, and that's just a really super quick tour of what we know from uh, on the data. Um, and we can talk about the data if you, if you like, but this is not a data talk. Um, this has fueled, naturally fueled a lot of debate. Um, I, I put together a few quotes here. Uh, these are all people looking at exactly the same data. I know they're looking at the same data because we produce the data. It's the World Bank's data, and that's what everybody uses. Uh, but they interpret the data in very different ways. So this is a quote from Justin Forsyth in um, Oxfam. There was the research director of Oxfam some time back now. Um, there is plenty of evidence that current patterns of growth and globalization are widening income disparities and hence acting as a break on poverty reduction. A quote from the International Forum for Globalization. Um, I don't think they'd say they're, they're for globalization. That's an odd title. They're actually against globalization. Um, globalization policies have contributed to increased poverty, increased inequality between and within nations. Now, on the other side, we hear views like this. So this is a quote from The Economist magazine, actually drawing on, on a paper by our, uh, colleagues of mine in the research department of the bank. Uh, growth really does help the poor. In fact, it raises their incomes by about as much as it raises the incomes of everybody else. Globalization raises incomes, and the poor participate fully. Very confident assessment, even more confident. Sergeant Bala, in a book, Imagine There's No Country, evidence suggests that no one has lost out to globalization. In an absolute sense, growth is sufficient, period. So how can we understand all that? How can we interpret that same empirical reality in such different ways? And is it just ideology, or is there something in the concepts people are using? How can we understand these differences? That's the first part of my talk today, concepts and measures. Uh, the second and third parts are about the empirics. The, uh, what do we know about the impacts of economic growth on poverty and inequality? Uh, and what do we know about how to make economic growth more poverty-reducing? What have we learned from a lot of experience in developing countries? Um, I think I'm going to skip two and three for, for time reasons. Uh, I think they're probably of more interest to development audience. But also, uh, largely given Paul's comments, I, I'm going to make sure I cover this fourth um, topic as well as I can. Can high current poverty self-perpetuate by inhibiting future economic growth? And I'll focus on that question. I'm going to skip two and three. So, sorry, you're going to see a lot of slides flashing by uh, in this talk, but um, I, I want, really want to cover that last question because they've got some new research on that question, a, a, a new paper of mine in, in the latest issue of the American Economic Review, which is entirely on that question. Okay, concepts and measures. Confusion galore here. Uh, inequality, poverty, pro-poor growth, inclusive growth. You hear all these terms, people defining them in all kinds of different ways. And I'm going to try and just give you a distillation of the differences. Because if you understand these differences in the meaning of these words, you can actually understand why people can look at the same empirical reality and can come to such, such different conclusions. In other words, understanding the concepts people are using is critical to understanding the debate. Uh, it's not a really a debate about the reality. It's a debate of how you interpret that reality. And that's, that's really important, because with, with, that, with that understanding, the debate can actually progress a bit further. Uh, we can understand each other a little bit better. Um, I'm not going to pretend that I'm, on, I'm pretty much on one side of this debate, and um, it, it, may, it may or may not be obvious which side I'm on, but I want to understand both sides of the debate. There's no, there's no point having a debate unless we can't have a, a proper conversation. What do we mean by inequality? Two different concepts here. Um, economists have favored the, what was called relative inequality. Um, I, I believe 
many people, non-economists, have a different concept of inequality, which is called absolute inequality. To understand the difference, think of the, 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 the numbers I put down here, state A and state B. In state A, we have two incomes, $1,000 and $10,000. In state B, $2,000 and $20,000. The ratio of incomes in those two states is unchanged. It's 10 to 1. Relative inequality is identical between those two states. But absolute inequality is hugely different. The absolute gap between the rich and the poor is vastly greater, twice as large in state B and state A. Absolute inequality is increased, relative inequality has stayed exactly the same. Now, it's not that one of these concepts is right and the other is wrong. If any economist tells you that relative inequality is the right concept, uh, it's, it's, that's nonsense. It all comes from an axiom. An axiom is, by definition, an axiom. It's something we, we can't prove. We can't deduce from data. It's something we, we, we apply to data. It's a theoretical concept. And that axiom is, is income scale independence. This is one of the uh, half-dozen core axioms of, of the theory of inequality measurement. Uh, it says simply that rescaling all incomes by a constant doesn't change inequality. It sounds kind of harmless, but actually I think it's, if you don't accept scale independence, the scale independence axiom, you're, you're going to totally think about inequality in a very different way. And in fact, when we've done surveys, mostly of, of students, surveys of how they, they um, think about inequality, by showing them different income distributions, very simple, like one, two, three, you know, two, four, six, is inequality higher in there than there. So you can just do that very simply. You can do it yourself. You've probably already done it when you saw the A and B before. Um, when we do surveys like that, we find that 40, 40 plus percent of respondents think of inequality in absolute terms. Very few economists think about inequality in absolute terms if they've studied economics, but that's the indoctrination that's happened through these axioms that we, we, we study. I, I'm an economist and I believe in the scale independence axiom. But equally, well, I know it's an axiom. I can't, I can't insist that this is the right way to think about inequality. That would not be scientific. Uh, whether one thinks about inequality, which way one thinks about inequality, actually matters a lot to the position one takes in these debates. And, um, I'm going to be skipping the core bit of the empirical evidence on that to, to prove it to you, but but uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll just show you one picture that uh, tells the story pretty well. What do I mean by poverty? Again, two definitions, absolute poverty and relative poverty. Absolute poverty, the numbers I showed you on poverty before, the $1.25 a day numbers from the World Bank, that's absolute poverty. The, absolute, the poverty line is intended to be fixed in real terms across people and over time. Uh, virtually all developing countries use that concept of poverty. Virtually all in high-income countries, developed countries, all high-income countries, use a very different concept, relative poverty. One of the big exceptions is the, the country I live in, the United States, where, where inequality is, is, is defined in absolute terms. But almost all rich countries use, in, use a relative concept of inequality. In a relative concept of inequality, typically uh, the uh, relative concept of poverty, sorry, in a relative concept of poverty, typically the poverty line is set as a constant proportion of the mean, the current mean in that uh, country or that place, that year, um, it, typically somewhere around 40 to 60% of the current mean. Um, there's a synthesis of absolute and relative poverty that I've been working on and as a subject of a, of a new paper. And the theory is outlined in this paper in the Review of Economic Statistics 2011, uh, which I call weekly relative poverty, which actually generalizes both concepts within one framework. And essentially the difference is I reject the idea of strongly relative poverty in the European welfare state literature. I think that doesn't make any sense. The reason it doesn't make any sense is that it makes an implicit assumption that the cost of social inclusion 
can fall to zero in the limit. As long as you assume that social inclusion has a positive lower bound in, in its cost, then you can't accept strongly relative poverty measures. And we know from, the, from everything we know about life in poor countries, there are costs of social inclusion and they don't fall to zero. Uh, the classic example in the defense of relative poverty measures is, is a quote from The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith. And in that quote, it talks, Adam Smith talked about the importance of a linen shirt to the dignity of a laborer in, in 18th century Europe. And you've probably all heard this quote. Think about that. Can that possibly justify, as it is claimed to justify, strongly relative poverty measures? No, it can't. A strongly relative poverty measure would imply that the cost of a linen shirt goes to zero as the person gets poorer and poorer in the limit. In the limiting cases, you're absolutely destitute. It says that the cost of the linen shirt is zero. How can that be? The cost of the linen shirt is exactly the same for the poorest person as the richest person. The cost of the socially acceptable linen shirt. It simply can't be that that's the way to think about social inclusion or bed, embed social inclusion in your measures of poverty. That leads to this concept of weekly relative poverty where we impose a positive lower bound on the cost of social inclusion. And we're now developing global poverty measures that, that build on that, that insight. Okay, pro-poor growth is another concept that um, you'll hear very different definitions of. Um, one definition says that pro-poor growth is essentially growth that reduces poverty. Any, whatever you, however you define poverty, absolute, relative, we define pro-poor growth as growth that, growth that, economic growth that reduces that concept of poverty. Um, another definition is growth with pro-poor redistribution. In other words, by this concept, um, it's not about what happens to poverty in a sense, it's what happens to inequality in the growth process. If inequality falls, the growth, the growth process is said to be pro-poor. If inequality rises, it's not pro-poor. Independently, what happens to poverty? And the two can move quite independently. Um, example for China. These are our estimates of the poverty rate for China, $1.25 a day, and also the new and, and old poverty, national poverty lines of China. There's actually an update of that. There's a new, new poverty line for, for national poverty line for China, which is about $1.80 um, $1 a day. So it's a huge increase in the national poverty line in China, reflecting uh, uh, new norms, social norms, of what poverty means in modern China. But the point is, whichever one of these lines you use, there's been a huge decline in absolute poverty. So by that definition, by one definition, China's growth process has been pro-poor, by definition one. By definition two, exact opposite. China's growth process has not been pro-poor because accompanying that increase in, in poverty, there's been a huge increase in inequality. Inequality not every year, not continuously, but over a 20, 30 year period, inequality in China has, has gone through the roof. I mean, it's on a trajectory to equal Brazil's within about 10 years. I think it's going to stop increasing. There's a, there's a profound economic logic that tells us that it's going to have to stop increasing. But it's been on this trend increase uh, over time. Um, OK, alternative concepts. Uh, the, the concepts here is not just about defining things in a precise way. It's also about understanding debate, as I've talked about. Uh, most economists tend to use definition one, relative inequality. Uh, pro-poor growth is growth that reduces poverty. That's, that's my definition of pro-poor growth. But equally well, we realize and have to realize that others hold different definitions, and that's an important part of the debate. Okay, um, in the interest of time, just I'm going to quick uh, go through a couple of 
just a couple of empirical observations. Here we have a, a picture of, of changes in the relative Gini index. I think everybody knows the Gini index. It's uh, the most popular inequality index. It's by no means the best inequality index. It's just the one that people like to use. Um, the relative Gini index changes between survey dates in the relative Gini index plotted, uh, that's on the vertical axis, on the horizontal axis plotted against rates of growth. And the point of this, if you use relative inequality, you get a picture with <laughs> no correlation. That, that, that regression line there is, is, it's not the axis. It looks like the axis. It's not. It's the regression line. <laughs> There's no relationship between changes in inequality and growth rates in developing countries. So if people say, oh, growth invariably increases inequality in developing countries, no, no it doesn't. Half the time during spells of growth, inequality increases. Half the time it falls. We're seeing inequality convergence going on. There's a lot of generalizations you hear. I hear them all the time in the media and, 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 and elsewhere. A lot of generalizations that simply don't hold up. And we've known that they don't hold up against the data for, for ages. And, and that's one of them. So if you define inequality in relative terms, then roughly speaking, economic growth tends to be distribution neutral on average. Relative inequality doesn't change on average. That's what, what it means to have a regression line that's flat like that. Yeah? But if, what about if you define inequality in absolute terms? Remember, relative inequality is about the ratios of incomes. Absolute inequality is about the differences in incomes, the absolute gap between the rich and the poor. And when people talk about inequality, often they say, the gap has risen between the rich and the poor. Uh, I doubt if they mean the proportionate difference. I expect they mean that, that the, the absolute standard of living has widened. The, the rich guy is, is buying a new car from the increase due to growth, and the poor guy is just fixing his, his bicycle, or maybe at most getting a new one. You know, so there's, there's an absolute gain, a re big increase in the absolute gap, even though the relative, the ratio of the two uh, incomes or consumption levels could remain identical. So what happens with, re with absolute Gini index? Bang. Strong positive relationship. Higher growth rates are associated with larger increases in absolute inequality. So people who say, ah, economic growth is tending to increase inequality, you have to ask for the next thing you ask, well, do you mean absolute inequality or do you mean relative inequality? And that essentially will be the answer to the question. Okay, I, I, how much time have I got? Yeah, so um, I'm going to skip a lot of this stuff. And the, the slides are available. Um, I want to talk, uh, just find one of them that I don't want to skip. Sorry. There, oh, this one just very quickly, since I've shown you a picture of how it matters whether you think about inequality in absolute or relative terms when you talk about growth and inequality, I want to show you a picture for, for what the data looks like for poverty. So again, we have spell, each one of these data points is between two household surveys at different dates, obviously. And on the vertical axis, we have proportionate changes in poverty, measured absolutely and relatively, and the vertical axis, the growth rates. So the same structure to the diagram as before. But this time I give you what's been happening to absolute poverty. This is the proportion of people living below $1.25 a day, and what's been happening to relative poverty. And you see it strikingly. You see the blue line is for, is for absolute poverty, and the red line is the regression line, the, the non-parametric regression line, for, for, for absolute, um, sorry, for relative poverty. The red line, relative poverty. The blue line, absolute poverty. So we see very clearly there, economic growth is associated with lower absolute poverty, but much less impact on relative poverty. There's an impact. The elasticity is about 0.4. It's statistically significant, 
Um, but it's, it's way, way lower than the elasticity for, for um, absolute property, which is about minus 2. Minus 0.4 versus minus 2. Big difference in elasticities, basically in the slopes of those two lines. So it really does matter, again, which of the two concepts you're using. Now, this fourth question, which is the, the big, really, I guess, the big question of the day, can high current poverty self-perpetuate uh, by inhibiting future economic growth? Um, we've assumed in development for a long time that, that provided you get the policies right, you get the fundamentals right in policy, you make sure the markets are working reasonably well, uh, try to remove economic distortions, all of this stuff, we've assumed that, okay, that'll be fine, then the growth will be stimulated, the poor will participate in that growth process, poverty will start to fall. But we've started to realize that it's a more, more complex story. There are other things, there are interaction effects between initial conditions in economies and other aspects of policy, including social policy, which can rather, rather cloud the picture considerably. Two messages from, from this line of research. Consistently with some growth theories, high current poverty makes it harder to grow in the aggregate. In other words, the evidence is now suggesting that maybe we've been thinking about the relationship the wrong, wrong way around. Yes, there's a relationship from growth to poverty, but we're also learning that there's a relationship from poverty to growth, and that poverty itself inhibits growth, and hence poverty reduction. So poverty can self-perpetuate, and this is true even if you've got good economy-wide, good efficiency-oriented market reforms and all of that. Things, things can be just dandy there, but you'll see very disappointing rates of progress against poverty. And this has really led, led me and others to understand better why we're seeing such slow progress against poverty in some parts of the world, as I showed you before, but particularly, but not only, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, the arguments here based uh, are a number. The theoretical arguments, an important strand of the theory is about uh, credit market failures. And the idea is very simple. In a credit-constrained economy, um, who tends to be most credit-constrained? Where do credit constraints tend to bind most? It tends to be poor people. They don't have the collateral. To, to get access to credit. Uh, that's what being poor is about. You're poor. You don't have the kind of wealth necessary to gain access to, to, to the credit markets. So you have all kinds of investment opportunities for which the marginal product of, 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 of that investment, of the marginal product of capital for that investment, is greater than the, than the interest rate. But if you're, if, you're, if you're above a certain level, you can get access to the credit market, you can nicely equilibrate the two. You can, you can start to tune, make investments that equalize the marginal product of capital as the interest rate, and everything looks dandy, and you're on a nice growth, growth trajectory. So credit market failures are key here. But if credit market failures bite more for the poor, the more poor people you have in the economy, the more people who are credit constrained because they're wealth poor, they don't have the... the, the, the wealth necessary to, to get access to credit, to finance investments, the lower the overall level of investment and the lower the rate of growth. So poverty itself can inhibit growth with, a credit, with credit market failure. This is the exact opposite of the arguments we used to make in development economics, so 40, 50 years ago, and, uh, where, where we always emphasize, we, we assume credit markets worked well, implicitly or explicitly, but we assumed that the, the real constraint on investment was savings in the economy, and the savings intended to be done by the rich, so the more rich people, the more the investment and the faster the growth. We actually learned the whole thing. That's completely wrong. It's the other way around. The more poverty there is, the more credit constraint people are, given the credit market failure. Now, this, I emphasize given the credit market failure. The policy implications here are two. One, fix credit markets, or two, if you can't do that, redistribute to the poor as an efficiency, for, for efficiency reasons only, even if you don't care about equity. 
Um, other arguments. Um, Efficiency-enhancing cooperation. This is a, an important strand of, of, the, of the literature emphasizing the role of, of inequality and polarization in, in, in inhibiting the ability of economies, developing economies, to people to cooperate, to provide public goods, including to implement efficiency-enhancing reforms. And that's an important area. Political economy models have also argued that inequality in democratic countries inhibits economic growth by, by encouraging economic distortions that, which, uh, through redistributive policies. I don't like that second one. I like the first one. <laughs> um, and also, and I really like this one, and I, when I say like, it's just because it, it fits my, my, my understanding of the reality from both evidence and observation. Lasting adverse productivity effects of poor nutrition, especially in childhood. And the evidence here is, is, is just so compelling now from both rich countries and poor countries. A simple example of that is one of the most robust predictors of adult earnings across the world one of the most robust predictors of your earnings as an adult is your birth weight. <laughs> Astonishing. Um, okay. Uh, evidence that high inequality impedes future economic growth. There's a bunch of studies here that have, have come to this conclusion. Also some interesting work on the role of gender inequalities in education and employment which can significantly reduce economic growth, it appears. All kinds of concerns about omitted variable bias and so on. Um, omitted variable bias is a big concern here. This is a, what economists and econometricians worry about when you've got an omitted variable in the regression, which is correlated with the things that are in the regression. Right? And this is happening all the time. A lot of the empirics is contaminated by this problem. But when you're trying to look at the effect of inequality on economic growth, uh, and you're controlling for the initial mean, then there's a strong presumption that inequality could well be reflecting the, the emitted variable could well be poverty. Because if, you're, if, you find higher if you find that higher inequality is associated with lower rates of growth and you're controlling for the mean, then it could well be, because high inequality is going to, controlling for the mean, high inequality is going to be strongly correlated with poverty. Obviously, if I hold the mean constant and inequality increases, then the poor have less share of the toe of the pie and poverty will be, will be greater. Okay, so there's a strong presumption that in this literature there's been this omitted variable bias. Nobody had actually included a poverty measure on the right-hand side in the, the literally 400 papers probably on, on this topic in, in economics in good journals, and everybody ignored this, this role of poverty as an initial condition. What we find when we include poverty, it completely wipes out inequality. The relevant variable for predicting, relevant distributional variable for predicting economic growth is not inequality, it's poverty. Absolute poverty impedes, higher levels of absolute poverty impede economic growth. The mechanisms we don't fully understand. Uh, it could well be the credit market failure. Uh, I think also the nutrition arguments that poverty is associated with high levels of uh, high po extreme poverty rates are associated with high levels of undernutrition, which reduce productivity. Um, conclusions then. I guess two main takeaways from all of this. Uh, on on pro-poor growth, uh, uh, poverty can self-perpetuate in two, two ways. Uh, I've emphasized one of those. It makes economic growth, uh, um, it makes for less economic growth, the second uh, bullet there. And first, it also makes the growth process less pro-poor. This is another strand of the literature which has established pretty convincingly that in high inequality or high poverty countries, not only do the, sh the poor have a lower share of the pie now, they tend to have a lower share in the increments to the pie with economic growth. And we're seeing that very strongly. So the inequality, one of the reasons you see a variance in the rate of poverty reduction at a given rate of growth, an important reason is, is inequality itself. 
Um, but also we've learned it's not just that interaction effect between distribution and growth that determines progress against poverty. There's an, there's an independent effect of initial conditions about distribution. Poorer places for various reasons, credit market failures, nutritional pro and productivity effects, inability to, to cooperate in highly unequal societies for a series of these reasons, which we don't fully understand the, the relative importance of those reasons. That's a continuing research agenda where we think additional distribution matters big time. I think that's summarized my, my main conclusions, but uh, I think this rethinking the mainstream view of the role of distribution is, is going to be key. Uh, rethinking pro-poor growth instead of um, the emphasis on the role of agroeconomic growth is not in question here. The, the real issue is how do we make that growth process more poverty reducing? And, how, and that, the answer to that question is built into the very, uh, is also gives you an out part of the answer to the, the really primary question, how do we achieve economic growth? The two are all embedded together. They're not separable. Um, new evidence also that high, high poverty countries face a double handicap. I, I'm closing now. A double, double handicap that uh, poverty is, is not only bad for economic growth, it's bad for, for um, making that growth process poverty reducing. So all of this is my last slide. All of this leads us to rethink the role of distribution. Um, I'm not arguing that, that inequality is only important because of how it impacts on aggregate economic efficiency. Of course, inequality is a bad thing per se for many reasons. But also, it, it also the evidence is that it impedes economic efficiency. Um, and that means it's, it's going to have a come at a longer term cost to, to, to poor people everywhere. Um, but not all inequalities matter. It's not, we're not talking about the inequality between Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. We're talking about inequality in the lower half of the distribution as far as economic growth and, and, and efficiency is concerned. Uh, you may still be worried about the inequality at the high end and the 1%, that's an entirely legitimate concern. That's where, not where the action is empirically in explaining uh, rates of growth across developing countries. It's at the lower end. It's understanding distribution in the lower end. Okay, I've listed here. This is hugely heroic. What do we need to do then? We need to, very importantly, we need to invest in the assets of poor people, but we also need to make markets work better for poor people. Uh, redistribution is a, is, a, is a kind of intervention which can have efficiency implications given market failures, but a lot of our policy effort must also go into making those markets work better for poor people, including credit markets, land markets, 